Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Migrating birds are long gone by this time of year, and who can blame them? It's been freezing. When I imagine where migratory birds go, I think they are probably out there living their best lives in a tropical paradise. But reality is very different from that, and some of our birds leave us every year to live on coffee plantations. With me now is Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She's Director of Conservation Science with Cornell Lab of Ornithology. She and her students have studied birds and shade-grown coffee for more than a decade. Thanks for joining us, Amanda. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Well, straighten me out a little bit, because I always like to think of birds in a tropical paradise, on some kind of preserve out there living their best lives. What is really going on? Yeah, and it's a great point. You know, when most people think about conservation and when they picture in their minds, right, where birds are going or where conservation is happening, their thoughts usually go to parks, reserves, and protected areas, right, just like you're imagining. But conservation isn't that limited. And species, you know, they're traveling all over the place. And so many species are actually, you know, living um, and relying on habitats that people also are living in and relying upon for their own needs. Um, we call a lot of these places working landscapes. So they can be farms and ranching communities, places where, you know, trees are harvested and forestry operations. And in the case of a lot of the migratory birds that we hold dear um, up here in the U.S., they are going to coffee plantations and other kinds of agricultural landscapes in Central and South America. How did you get started looking at shade-grown coffee and coffee plantations? When I first became really interested in this, it was about 20 years ago um, when I was a, a student and finishing up my studies, and people were really becoming aware of the fact that we had been focusing so much on you know, studying and trying to understand how we could protect birds on the breeding grounds, right? So up here where they're spending their summer and, you know, building their nests and raising their young. Um, and we had been overlooking what was happening in the winter. And so I happened to be studying um, when I was at Ohio State University. Um, a student and I were studying cerulean warbler, which is a forest bird that's been steeply declining since the 1960s. And we started to try to explore what other factors other than things happening in the forest where they breed might be contributing to their declines. And that really got us focused on shade coffee plantations. You know, this is a species that overwinters in coffee. And we also were aware of a lot of research that had been done out of Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center by colleagues and elsewhere in the country showing the number of migratory birds and also tropical resident species that are found on shade coffee farms farms is actually pretty extraordinary. Um, so we started shifting some of our focus to Venezuela first and then Colombia, trying to understand what was happening in these farms and, and how we could best manage them to support birds, you know, in a way that would support the local human communities that were relying on those farms as well. What kind of things did you find out about birds overwintering at coffee plantations? Because it seems like I, mean, I was looking at the list of birds who do it, 
and it's very long. There's lots of our favorites on there, all sorts of warblers and things. What's going on there? Yeah, and it's very interesting, you know, because again, a lot of people would imagine that these birds are going to very pristine tropical forests. Um, But these shade coffee farms, so there's a wide range, I'll say, of different approaches to managing coffee. And shade coffee can range from not so many trees to very forest-like conditions. And so when you look at these farms, when the more trees they have and the more forest-like they are, you find that there are enormous migratory bird flocks. You, know, you might have a group of warblers and tanagers you know, that are moving through these forests. There might be 30, 40, 50 different individual birds, you know, 20 different species that are foraging together in the canopies. And a lot of these warblers are spending their entire winter there. And even more, they're returning to the same coffee farms year after year after year. And so it's really impressive. Um, And we were able to study them to look at their survival and found that these species were actually surviving the winter really well in these coffee farms, that they were able to put on weight, you know, to gain fat, which is really important for these migratory birds because that's really the currency that gets them back up north um, when they have to migrate in the spring again. And so from our research and also from other research that's been done by colleagues in other locations and other countries and different kinds of coffee systems, there's really good evidence that these farms can be managed in a way that provides good habitat to the birds and at the same time can actually be economically viable um, for the people that are growing the coffee. I'm talking with Dr. Amanda Rodewald. She's Director of Conservation Science at Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and we're talking about some of the research that she's done with tropical shade coffee plantations. Let's talk more about what's in it for the people there and the connection that we have with these people who are growing our coffee. It sounds like if there's more trees on their land, they get less coffee. Is that true? How does it make it worthwhile for them? Right. So it can be a little bit complicated. So there are a few things that we need to consider. So, you know, one is I'll just kind of paint a picture of the contrast from if you're not growing shade coffee, the alternative system is what we refer to as sun coffee. And that's growing coffee like we grow corn, right, as a monoculture where it's just a single crop. And in that kind of system, the coffee requires more inputs, right? So from fertilizers, um, it requires more chemical applications to reduce pests or weeds, um, because like any monoculture, right, it's going to be much more vulnerable to disease and other pests. And so the more trees you have on, you are, the farmers are actually deriving some important services from a healthy environment. So a lot of times the trees that they're planting are actually, you know, fertilizing with nitrogen. So these are nitrogen-fixing trees um, that they're planting that can help keep that soil healthy. Because there are birds and other species, you know, that are on those farms, um, they're also able to eat the insects. That Many of them are pests for coffee plants. So that can actually help to offset um, some of the yields that might be suppressed, um, the coffee yields that they might lose under really heavy shade. 
and their own health can be improved because they're not exposed to so many chemicals. Um, in terms of the community, you have a lot of improvements to water quality um, as well, just from keeping forests on these steep slopes, reducing runoff, reducing landslides. So those are some of the benefits. But coming back to your original question, yeah, depending on how much shade there is and depending upon the site conditions, there are cases where you might have reduced yield of coffee. This is oftentimes offset partly because farmers are growing a coffee variety under shade that is actually better tasting and usually gets a higher price when they go to sell that at markets. Um, so even though it's a lower yield, in some cases, they're getting a better price. But now it becomes pretty complicated when you try predicting yield because coffee is a crop that likes cooler temperature generally. Generally speaking, the slower berries growing, the richer it is, the better quality it is. And so that's the higher quality bean that a lot of buyers want. Um, with the changing climate and warming temperatures and more exposure to drought, people are actually wanting to have more trees on the landscape because finding that that's actually improving yields in some locations. And so it's interesting because we're finding now that we're coffee companies like you know Nespresso is a good example. They're actually planting trees and paying farmers to plant trees specifically to protect their supply of coffee in a warming climate. It's complicated, but... Well, it sounds like a pretty good deal to grow shade-grown coffee then, if all these complications are benefits in a way. But from what I understand, the number of acres with shade-grown coffee is going down. I mean, I don't think I see it as much in the store. If I was kind of guessing from five or ten years ago, I think I maybe see less. Is that possible? So I'm not sure about which, in terms of at market, you know, and at different places where people are looking to buy, you know, how much is labeled as shade versus not. It's a market that was initially really moved forward in part by a lot of specialty coffee roasters, you know, who really um, were attracted to, you know, sustainability as one way that they could brand and differentiate their products. And, you know, what I've heard is some of the specialty coffee roasters, it's not that they're not interested in sustainability, but the emphasis is more on kind of the story behind the coffee, right? The families, the region, you know, where it is, this direct trade and relationships that we have with places and people. And so it could be sometimes that that's being emphasized rather than the actual way the coffee is grown in terms of shade or sun. So we've seen some trends where, yeah, over the last um, maybe four decades, the amount of sun-grown coffee has really um, been growing hugely. And now in Latin America, about half of the coffee is grown under sun conditions. So we have seen those trends in terms of what's on the ground. But there is, because again, of the threats, the climate change, land cover change, we are seeing a lot of renewed interest in 
finding ways to help farmers and help communities transition back to shade. I mean, I guess it depends on where you're shopping, but if you look around, you can see some products that are certified, you know, whether it's Rainforest Alliance or Smithsonian bird-friendly coffee and available um, for consumers to purchase to support shade coffee. Dr. Amanda Rodewald is Director of Conservation Science at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I went to their website and looked at a lot of movies and things that you have up there that are excellent on this topic, and people can check things out there at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. If people see your presentation, what kind of things do you show people? Lots of pictures. <laughs> so taking a broad view, first really talking about why it is we need to look beyond just protected areas in order to conserve species and to protect a healthy environment for people. And so that's one of the important issues, really placing the coffee issue, you know, sort of looking at it through that lens. And then talking about how coffee is produced, the different benefits that can flow to the environment, you know, ecosystem services, different bird species and other non-bird wildlife and plant species that are out there, and then benefits to the community. And then sharing some of the research that we've done, you know, I've um, pursued with collaborators in economics about how we can actually help to better incentivize shade-grown coffee and make it easier for farmers to produce that while supporting their families and communities. Thanks a lot for joining us, Dr. Amanda Rodewald. Thanks so much, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll hear the story of a Pakistani boy who fled from bonded labor and went on to become an activist on child labor issues. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Now you'll hear the story of a remarkable little boy's escape from slavery in Pakistan in 1993. Iqbal Masih was forced into bonded labor as a carpet weaver at the age of four. He escaped and became a leading voice in the fight for children's rights. Iqbal was tragically killed in 1995 at the age of 12. For the BBC program Witness, Farhana Haida spoke with Asan Ula Khan, whose organization helped free Iqbal. It's September 1992. A meeting is being held in Shekhapura in northwest Pakistan, 
organized by a group called the Bonded Labor Liberation Front, or BLLF, which campaigns for the eradication of bonded labor in South Asia. Earlier that year, the Pakistani government had banned bonded labor, but the law wasn't being enforced. Esan Ullah Khan was the BLLF's founder. I saw one small child coming towards the meeting. This child, I read his face and uh, I felt that he he wanted to say something, but uh, he don't have a courage. That child was Iqbal Masi, a slight 10-year-old boy who was barely four feet tall. He was frightened, he was very dirty. I talked with him for 10 minutes, he was just silent. Then, when he got attention, his face started to open. And then he looked at me, he said, I am Iqbal, what are you doing? I'm making carpet. When you started work? When I was four years. So then I said, you see the children are speaking and telling it their story. Can you repeat? No, 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 no. He started shivering, he sweating, but I gave more attention to him. And then he got courage. And other children who were sitting beside, they helped him to bring in front of Mike. And then this was the first step towards the freedom. There was a big meeting in Sheikhapura with Ace and Ullah Khan. I ran away from work when the owner forbade me to go there. At the meeting, I made a speech about the cruelties of our owner. When I returned, the owner said, We'll never let you go again. I am not afraid of the owner any longer. Now he is afraid of me. Iqbal speaking here on a recording made by Ehsan's organisation was one of millions of working children in Pakistan, a large percentage of whom worked in bonded labour. That means that their parents are in debt to factory owners, feudal landlords or criminal gangs. Iqbal's impoverished family lived in Muridke near Lahore and had borrowed money from a local employer who owned a carpet weaving business. But when they were unable to pay back the debt, Iqbal's mother was forced to give up her son as a bonded labourer. The loan system the only used to trap the family is called Peshki. He was living with family, but working in carpet factory, the whole family was under debt. In debt? Yeah. And they are Peshki, they call it Peshki. They are spread everywhere. Their network is very strong. When children are not in school, they are vulnerable. And then this mafia network, sometimes they bribe the parents, sometimes they force the parent and bring the children to work. And that is the system. Iqbal was also victim of this system. What would his work have been like, making carpets? Sometimes they used to work 14 hours, but uh, normally from early morning to late evening. They are beaten, they are chained, they are uh, tortured. And that would have been Iqbal's life from the age of four? That was Iqbal and other children's life. In Iqbal's case, he was rescued from bonded labour by the direct intervention of Ehsan's organisation. Having first met him at the Shekhapura meeting, the campaigners went to his place of work and freed Iqbal and dozens of other children working there. These rescues were carried out at great risk and often led to attacks and death threats against the activists. When he got this freedom, the first work which we have done, school. I opened school in his village, but that was burned by the carpet mafia. The teacher was beaten, the furniture was uh, burnt, and then his mother came to me that he wants education. You should be the guardian forever. I cannot keep him, so you give him education. He was living with me. 
Now living with Ehsan, Iqbal was in full-time education for the first time in his life. His was just one of 220 schools, which the Bonded Labour Liberation Front had started for around 11,000 former slave children. Soon Iqbal was standing out among the other pupils. So I was uh, discussing with him and he was discussing with the other children. Then he was talking with me. We were transferring our knowledge and he went to different meetings and different schools and he was speaking there and his abilities become visible. Soon Iqbal was travelling around Pakistan speaking up for other child labourers. In 1994, he was awarded a prestigious Human Rights Award in America for his campaigning work. He travelled to Boston for the ceremony with Ehsan, where they stayed at a top city hotel. And this was from slavery to freedom and then freedom, the upper level of freedom, it was a big change. And the last night when uh, we were preparing his speech... He said that you should do something. I said, I can share with you, but I will never dictate you. It is not my program. Because always we share and we discuss about the speech which he wrote. And then he delivered it. Thank you. We have a slogan at school. When children are free, we all say together, we are free. I will say we are and you say free. His speech got a lot of attention. Brandeis University principal was there and he gave him admission in the university on the same time that he should complete the basic education in Pakistan and then become a lawyer. So was he ever surprised at how much he could achieve? Yeah, after America. In the beginning, he was sure that uh, he will be a good person. But after America, he was more strong. Then his dreams were very high. Still a young boy, Iqbal was speaking at schools across the US and Europe, raising awareness about child slaves and advocating for their freedom. But his work as an outspoken campaigner made him enemies back home. Iqbal wanted to go with me to Islamabad. I was going to address a press conference, but his mother came. He said, tomorrow we have Easter. An Easter celebration. Easter celebration. I like that uh, he should be with me. When I came next day in the morning, the organization driver was very silent. And when he dropped me, he started to weeping, crying. He said, just hour before I got a telephone call that Iqbal is killed. Just someone said Iqbal is killed. Iqbal had been shot dead by an unidentified gunman. It was Easter Sunday, the 16th of April, 1995. No one has ever been charged with his murder, although it's believed he was killed because of his international crusade against the practice of child labour. What has Iqbal's death, what has his loss meant? As a person, this was a big tragedy. Uh, Emotionally, it was very heavy. But uh, when I felt that this is not Iqbal who was killed, they wanted to kill the whole work which Iqbal has done, the struggle against slavery. I try to keep the light. Today, I have lost everything. My organization is crushed by the forces. Still, I'm running some schools. You know that Nobel Prize, they awarded Malala Yousafzai and Kalasati Arti because they raised the voice for the rights of the children. And this is the struggle which we and Iqbal has started. 
the slavery and child labor this is a created problem it can be solved there are still millions of children in bonded labor in pakistan and around the world esenula khan now lives in exile in sweden and that report was from farhana haida for the bbc program witness Chicago is a major hub for sex trafficking in the United States. Coming up after the break, we'll find out about a Chicago organization that helps bring back survivors of sexual slavery. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. We're going to visit again with Sela Freedom. Elizabeth Fisher is president and CEO of Sela Freedom, and Sela Freedom works with survivors of trafficking and gets them to a new life. Thank you for joining us again. Great thank to see you. you. Yeah, thank you so much for having us back. Tell us, for people who haven't heard of Sela Freedom, what is it? What are you doing? Well, Sela Freedom literally exists to fight sex trafficking, but not how most people think about it. It's not international. We are passionate about our own American kids because the really quick elevator speech of it is one out of three little girls, one out of five little boys are sexually abused, any zip code in America. And when they keep a secret that young, something happens when they're like 12 to 14 and they typically hit the streets or do something else to act out. And within 48 hours on any street in America where there's a runaway, running from something like this, 80% of them will be approached by a trafficker who lures them in, sells them for sex 15 to 40 times a day, typically for seven years, and steals everything that they should have had. So that's why we exist. Now, your program has grown quickly in recent years. <laughs> Explain the scope of what Sale of Freedom does. Yeah. We started with, oh my gosh, we have to give them a home. It's just not right that these guys don't have an opportunity to start over. And having safe housing really went hand in hand with we developed an outreach program, which that arm is, you know, on the street, in the jails, partnering and training. We've been training law enforcement all over the country, but training law enforcement to understand they used to arrest young girls on the street for minor prostitution until the education and the laws started changing. And we partner with them to now rescue and law enforcement runs after these girls. So that outreach arm is sometimes for two years chasing a girl. You know, unfortunately, safe housing is needed now, and outreach has to happen to help find what's already been horrifically ignored and allowed to be exploited. But we have a prevention arm that's our newest, and that's like in Chicago alone, the exponential growth from 300 to 3,000 youth just in the last year we've trained. I know, but it's getting ahead of it to talk to them about what secrets might you be carrying, what's going on, and what does coercion look like every grade, K through 12, and then just awareness program where we educate millions every year. Now, the programs where you get girls who have been sexually trafficked, you have to graduate to something. You have to graduate to a life. 
oh, well, you know what? The majority of the young girls that come to us have been on the streets or in some horrific situation, typically since they were 11, 12, 13, 14, if not earlier, and almost all come in without a GED. And 100% of our graduates, minimum, complete their GED. The majority are 99%, I think, are in college as they're in graduation and go on a career path or stay on that college path. Uh, well, previously we've talked with you about this, mm-hmm. and it sounds like a great thing you're doing, but this is the first time we get to talk with someone who is a sexual trafficking survivor, and Julianne is here, yes. and it's good to meet you. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for sharing your story. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell us a little about yourself. So I'm from the state of Illinois, a normal Midwestern home, two parents, a girl next door. <laughs> when you look at me, I look like other girls. You know, there's nothing particularly different about me. And we were just hearing the statistics from Elizabeth about people who were abused going into sex trafficking often. Is that true in your situation? Yes. Um, When I was a child, I was molested. Um, I was taken away from my parents when I was three. I was put into the foster care system and I was adopted by my aunt and uncle. Um, And they finalized the adoption when I was five. And fast forward, Um, There was traumas that happened throughout my life. Um, My mother was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. My brother um, had schizophrenia. Um, So that mental illness, it was like a person that I loved was being taken away from me, along with my mom. And it just felt like event after event, everything that I loved was being taken away. Fast forward again, um, eighth grade, I was was raped and... um, I was convinced and coerced, basically, um, that in order to be loved and in order to be accepted in this world and to be able to be safe out there, I had to put out. And in order to do that, I had to have sex with people in order to have a place to stay, have food, have clothes, have things that I needed. And it was this, this fuel that I needed was the love. And I thought that I was getting it through this. So um, for years, I was I was raped over and over again. That's what I consider it. And I was forced to be put in situations. In order to survive, I had to do this. Did you ever leave the Chicago area? Did you leave the state? Did you want to run away farther? So um, when I was, I'm going to say, in the custody of these men, um, there was no running. I... I was raped at gunpoint, and there was no leaving. There wasn't an option for me. Like, this is what I had to do. And it was my identity at this point. Like, that was the only thing that I was good at in my eyes at that point. And so I would have loved to just left, but that wasn't an option for me. Where did you begin to see that there was an option? So my trafficker was arrested. That was the turning point for me because after that, I got arrested. And there were angels that came into my life and basically said, what are you doing? You know, like you are worth so much more than that. And that was the first time in a long time that somebody told me that I was worth something. So with that being said, they took me under their wing, basically, and showed me a new way and introduced me through a few people to Selah. 
what had happened to your loved ones during this time? Your aunt and uncle, your people that you knew? My family, my birth parents were, I don't even know where they're at now, but my aunt and uncle, um, they, they lost me. And um, it broke their heart. But now I have, through the, all the work that I've put in, I have a relationship with them. And it's a beautiful thing. When you talk about putting in the work, it sounds like you have a really good understanding of the forces that drove everything. How did you start doing that? Where do you begin? So it all begins with myself. Like I said before, I didn't have any self-worth. I thought that in order to be loved and accepted, I had to have sex with people. But that was just a mask that I put on. And Sela helped me to pull off that mask and to really dig deep and realize who I am as a person. And I've, I've gone through trauma therapy, and um, that helps me pull off those layers and to be able to really look at and disconnect the emotions from the trauma so I can really look at this is what happened. And they gave me the tools to be able to move forward. And I really learned self-worth. That was one of my most important things is I love myself. I'm talking with Julianne. She is a sex trafficking survivor and went through the program with Sale of Freedom. I wanted to say some things about what you aspire to now. What do you want to do? So I want to help people. I want to help people in, a, in the same way that people helped me, and if not even more. Today I am in school. I'm, I'm taking psychology, and it's extremely fascinating, <laughs> and a few other classes. But it's really helping me to understand scientifically the background to what I really want to do. I work part-time. Um, I have a car. I, I'm going to lead a group for other survivors. And on a daily basis, I would like to say that I help other survivors with basic things, with just talking to them, with expressing that you're beautiful and you're worth this and you can do this. And I would like to say that I'm in a very good place, but I am just at the beginning. I have so much more that I would like to do. Well, it's great to hear that you have so much more you want to do. This is a, a wonderful story. And you've got relationships with the people you love again. Yes. That's good. Elizabeth? Could Julie share one more story with you that sure. is such a victory? I mean, this girl is dynamic and beautiful and amazing and brilliant. And yeah. share about what you got to do in the justice system. Yes. So the trafficker that went to jail, he was in jail for a few years and then a trial came up and um it was kind of like on and off and on and off but the victory of it is he was convicted of 30 years in federal prison and i was able to say a victim's impact statement which i worked very hard on and it was very healing for me and i was able to express it and one of the people in the courtroom that day that has been in the justice system an extremely long time said that it was the best victim's impact statement that he had ever heard in his entire career. And everybody in the courtroom stood up and clapped. Wow. <laughs> um, 
Why was that important for you? How did that give you the satisfaction and clarity? I was able to forgive. I was able to forgive this person who had hurt me in unimaginable ways. I never once said that anything that he did to me was okay, but I was able to say, I don't want to be stuck on this anymore. I don't want to let this person have control over my life, and I want to move on. So in forgiving him, I am able to move on, and I'm able to be empowered and a survivor. I imagine you talk to other women who've been uh, trafficked, and, and you can bring this experience to them. This is a powerful thing. Yes. To see someone who is fresh off the streets and fresh out of the lifestyle, and they're able to see someone who understands what they've gone through and is actually doing things that I never thought that I was going to be able to do anything with my life. I never even thought that I was going to be able to get a GED, let alone be in college and be doing the things that I'm doing. I'm beginning a career, and to be able to share that with a girl who doesn't even believe that she's worth a roof over her head or clothes over her back or love, I can't explain it to you. It's it's one of the most beautiful things. We're talking with Julianne, and she is a sex trafficking survivor and has worked through the Sale of Freedom program. Elizabeth Fisher is here, president and CEO of Sale of Freedom. It must be great to work with so many young women when they get to this point. I mean, it's uh, that's very powerful stuff. Yeah, I always say there's nothing greater in the world because you know what? We literally are finding, just like the story she described about working with a girl that comes into our program, like you find somebody that has given up on their identity, that doesn't even believe they were made for more. And it's like you watch life being breathed back into them with this amazing, we have an army of staff, an army of volunteers in every regional way of housing, and they love the life back into these girls and their identity. And I mean, look at her. She's the most gorgeous, talented, I mean, and you should have seen when she came in, she was this little, I mean, barely 18, I mean, no idea of her worth and her value, and now she is a role model, and she is amazing, and just beginning, just be, it's like the pride you have of your own children, you're like, oh, I'm so proud of them, (laughs) no greater gift. The last time you were here, you had a film crew following you around, there were people from the Visionaries program with Sam Watterson, it's on PBS. And I understand some of the footage is going to see the light of day soon. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I just got the rough cut the other day. And you need to know that they used a huge portion of this radio show and what they said to me, their editing team. It's a half-hour program that will be coming out on PBS soon, I think by February, March. And literally, they said, Elizabeth, the content was so good. Everything on that radio show we wanted to use. It was so hard to edit. So they did say that right now it's a 30-minute, but they want to grow it to a 60-minute documentary and take it to the Sundance Film Festival and all the festivals because it's remarkable. Radio looks great on television. I know. You, you, get a, you, you know. It seems like something's happening. If you were just sitting there, it wouldn't be as fun as if you're on the radio. Exactly. <laughs> um, now, I wanted to ask about how your approach has changed over the years. Well, you know, it's interesting because 
in the very beginning, I remember sitting with different law enforcement agents. Like we had to educate law enforcement because they used to arrest minors for prostitution. And they used to just be like, oh, those disgusting, oh, duh. And the men were slapped on the wrist and sent home to their wives and get out of here, Joe, go tell Betty hello. And um, the perpetrators, the traffickers, there was nothing. And it's interesting in the beginning because there was still a division of, well, this might be sex trafficking, but this is prostitution. And, you know, this one might have chosen it, but this one. And I, I think what it's led to is I actually I have a book coming out with HarperCollins called Groomed. And because my thinking like, Everybody was groomed for it. There's no choices anywhere. And I think people like to compartmentalize it because it makes you feel good. And you could ignore this because, you know, you've labeled that something that goes over there. And I think the grooming of our culture that I feel bad for the men that are deceived. You know, they're not out there because they're like, ooh, I'm loving to buy this 14-year-old. Like, this is so great. I think men have been groomed. They say the stats now are boys are exposed to porn by eight. Addictions are hidden of porn addiction by 12. Girls are abused and being raised to hide it and keep the secret. Little girls are exposed to pornography as well. So there's an article that just came out, um, an interview with a 14 or 15-year-old girl, and it's talking about sex without ever having my first kiss because the generation that we're raising and what we're grooming is one that has lost the true intent of intimacy and relationship it's being stolen by the time they're eight, nine, ten years old. So when a little boy wants to date a girl, he's just emanating what he's seen on, you know, the phone. We were at an event at Hyatt Corporate yesterday, and one of the women said, you know, when I heard you speak for the first time, it changed everything. So I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm raising sons. You know, what are they thinking? Like, have I already missed it? And she went to her 17-year-old son, and she said, talk to me about porn. He's like, oh, geez, mom, come on. And, and he said, no. She goes, really? You know, because we were raised with, you know, airbrushed Playboys. It's very different. It's soft porn now. That's what you see in Cosmo magazines now, right? Almost. And he said to her, mom, you really want to know? He said, I have this iPhone in my hand. He said, I could say, show me sex between a two-year-old baby and an 80-year-old man, and I'm going to get a video. You say, show me a camel and an old lady. I mean, like, the images that are getting imprinted on our young children's brains because we give them devices without knowing there's controls on them, there's a stealing going on. You know, Sela is not a faith-based organization. I am a believer for sure. And I think that our children, their childhoods are being stolen, and we need to rise up. And that's why the prevention arm of Sela Freedom could not be more passionate about because if we are there in kindergarten and first grade, like people are like, oh, come into our high school. I'm like, no, no, by high school, they've been keeping a secret for, I mean, they're already gone. Like, forget about it. We need intervention when they're five, six, four. And breaking this like horrific stealing of purity and lives and opportunities, everything is just getting worse and worse. So I feel like Sela is a movement. Yes, we help survivors of sex trafficking, but we're sort of taking back the ground that's been stolen and saying no more, like little girls and little boys are worth so much more. We have to guard and we have to protect. What do you want to do with Sale of Freedom in the future? What's what's rolling out next for you guys? We have so many things rolling out. <laughs> no, but they're the same. I mean, there is no mission creep, but I think people should know that. We're not like just expanding into this and that and that. We have our four pillars of what we do, but we are exponentially expanding and growing. So in Chicagoland, We are on the verge of opening a 7,700-square-foot safe home, 20 beds, largest of its kind that is, you know, outcomes and ability to really, really make a difference. 
and we're so close. So I'm going to do a, please help us finish. Don't you want to be part of the celebration team? And we need like $80,000 to complete the construction. And it was gifted to us. But then the minute it exchanged hands, literally the village came in and it had not changed hands in 30 years. And every bit of it bailed the inspection because they termed us commercial versus it came from personal. And they made us gut it down to stud. So the budget that we had anticipated. <laughs> so we need like oh. 80000 more. But this thing, every room's already been adopted. Like the home that Julie lived in, you know, we have like a color palette DNA. Donors are waiting to do the bedrooms, do the furniture part. But the guts of it, you know, only 80 people giving $1,000 right now. I hope like our website's going crazy right now. Because these girls, it's like eight degrees out here. And out there thinking you have nowhere to go and you have to have sex to have a roof over your head for the night. Like, no, we can't have that. So we're so close to opening this state-of-the-art beautiful home. Now, you train volunteers? You work with volunteers on a regular basis? We have so many volunteers, yes. We invite people to come on out. Um, What's interesting is we hold a different level of volunteer training. So the first one's called Connect Team. And I want to give credit to you, Mr. Jerome. Good. (laughs) Because... This is the best show. I'm on things all over the country. Your audience, you have outcome. If I say something here, there's action. Like Good. you guys, your people show up. I think the one of the last times I was on was right before the Cubs going to the World Series. And we were having a volunteer training. So Friday night, I think, was the first game or something, home game. And then Saturday morning at 9 a.m., we had a volunteer training. Do you know 60 people walked into that room that morning and they said, we're here because we heard you yesterday. Ah, good. You know, we, we were up all night with the Cubs, but we're here. We have over 400 volunteers in every region that we have our programming. And they could get involved with speaking, events, hands-on in the home. I mean, you could be a mentor and you get intimately involved. You could just be on the celebration team and decorate for birthdays, like a whole plethora of ways to help. Well, congratulations on everything you're doing with Sailor Freedom, and we'll visit it again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks very much, Elizabeth Fisher, president and CEO of Sale of Freedom. And thanks very much, Julianne, uh, who was a sex trafficking survivor now in college and studying psychology and prepared for great things. Great to meet Thank you. you. Thank you for doing this. Northwestern's Hamid Nafizi is such a well-respected film scholar, they made a movie about him. It's showing at the Festival of Iranian Films at the Siskel Center this weekend. We will talk with Hamid tomorrow on Worldview. I hope you can join us. Did you know that you could podcast this program? It is true. Sign up for the Worldview podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or you can go to wbez.org slash worldview and make a couple of clicks from there. Whatever you do, sign up for the Worldview podcast. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview from WBEZ. WBEZ.